You're listening to Health Center in the Catskills on WIOX Community Radio, live and local in the Catskill Mountains. I'm Diana Mason, the host of this program. I don't like the feeling that I have when I'm in healthcare facilities. I often feel intimidated by the system, even though I'm a nurse, or intimidated by a healthcare worker or clinician who may be used to stripping patients and family members of any semblance of control over their own lives, whether by having you sign a host of forms in small print or putting you in a flimsy gown or cutting you off as you try to describe your health problem or dismissing your symptoms. In one situation, I was answering the question of a physician who kept cutting me off. As I was in the middle of one explanation, he arose from his chair and without telling me what he was going to do, let alone ask me for permission to touch me, he started to palpate my abdomen. It didn't make me eager to see him again, and I haven't. So why do we feel so diminished when we're in a healthcare facility or with some clinicians, and why does it matter? Dr. Melissa Minoilovich has been studying this topic for some time. She is a researcher and professor of nursing at the University of Michigan, and she's also a senior fellow at the Center for Health Policy and Media Engagement at the George Washington University School of Nursing, where I have hold a courtesy appointment, and I've been having the pleasure of working with her on disseminating her research, and I am delighted to have her on Health Center in the Cat skills to talk about this topic. Melissa, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for the invitation, Diana. Happy New Year to you. And Happy New Year to you, too. Yes, yes. I hope it's a good year. As, thank you. Thanks for you. As, as my colleague, Barbara Glickstein, whom you know, uh, we, we recorded a segment uh, that I just aired, and we were saying that uh, we hope that last year's highs will be this year's lows. So we're trying to be hopeful here. Well, Melissa, you have a long history of funded, including NIH-funded, National Institutes of Health-funded research on communication in critical care settings. And those could be the ICU, the intensive care unit, or the emergency room. So tell us about what got you into this work. Yeah, so uh, thanks for that question, Diana. I jokingly tell people that I study communication because I'm so bad at it myself. (laughs) But the truth is that I'm really no better or worse than most people when it comes to communication. My entire career in nursing has been spent in critical care. That's over 30 years now. And early on, I had varying levels of success in communicating with physicians. And by that, I mean varying levels of success and getting my point across, and getting the physician to come to the bedside, or in getting the physician to order something for one of my patients that I thought was needed. And I wondered, why is that? Why couldn't I consistently get the response I expected from the physician? It spurred me to delve into the topic of communication as an area of research interest. And you've been doing that research, and I, I want to jump very quickly, though, into into the issue um, that I, I spoke about earlier, 
in the intro and and that is this this idea of what happens to us when we're in an emergency situation in the emergency room or in critical care or in a healthcare facility and why does this matter uh, what happens to us when we go into an emergency room or are in some other situation needing health care what happens to us yeah well what happens to people is that they lose their agency and by that i mean agency in general refers to people having choices and the competencies to act on them and patient agency is agency specific to people who enter hospitals as patients so another way to think of it is, you know, you, you have your a, a belief in your ability to initiate or sustain action towards some goal that you've got. But unfortunately, patients, you know, when they come to the hospital, they struggle to become knowledgeable and manage their condition, and so they lose their agency. They lack the special medical knowledge, you know, the competency that is needed to identify and treat whatever is bothering them. In other words, they lack the ability to make a diagnosis. You know, sure, many times people come to the emergency room for things like broken bones or blood on the outside of the body when everybody knows blood should only be inside the body. But, you know, many times patients do not know what is wrong. And because they're usually not healthcare professionals themselves, they don't have the knowledge to figure out what is wrong and treat it. And unfortunately, many patients leave the ER without a clear understanding of their diagnosis or even without a diagnosis at all. And there's no clear understanding of next steps, such as, you know, follow-up, what to do if problems persist, symptoms to watch out for. And this is a problem because patients who return to the ER with the same problem are often sicker, and being sicker means that the risk of morbidity and mortality increases. I think, you know, one of the things, too, Diana, is, you know, your story was very compelling at the beginning when you talked about your experience with that physician. And I think, you know, one of the things is that if you were at a cocktail party, that physician would never in a million years do yeah. what he did to you. Yeah. But, you know, because it's in the hospital, it's like that the physician uh, feels um, comfortable to be able to treat you like that, feels that that's part of the uh, normal behavior, normal culture. And we have to remind ourselves and our physician colleagues that, hey, no, I'm sorry, that's still not normal behavior. We may not be at a cocktail party. But touching me without my permission or even without telling me what you're going to do is just wrong. And we have to be able to speak up about that. Yes. Um, so so you also are concerned about this whole issue because of what's called diagnostic errors. Talk a little bit about yep. that. Yeah. So, you know, there are approximately 141 million ER visits in the U.S. annually. And experts have made a conservative estimate of diagnostic error in 5% of those ER visits. That doesn't sound like a lot, but a diagnostic error rate of 5% translates to 7 million diagnostic errors every year. Now, half of those diagnostic errors lead to patient harm, and if that wasn't bad enough, more than half of errors are preventable. Now, the study of diagnostic errors is still in its infancy, and one largely unexplored topic is how to better communicate with patients so that the patient's words make sense to clinicians and clinicians can use the words that patients provide to help find solutions. Physicians are taught to examine patients in a systematic way and put together clinical findings in a specific fashion, and this is called review of systems. Now, patients have not learned how to do this. So they talk about their symptoms using non-clinical language, jumping maybe from one topic to another, 
sometimes, especially in the ER, patients do not tell the physician everything, afraid that they will be criticized or misunderstood. So this lack of understanding between physicians and patients, especially in the ER, where, pa- where physicians have no previous relationships with the patients, can contribute to diagnostic errors. And, and, and so one of the pieces here that you've really looked at has to do with communication, not just communication with the physician and, or nurse and the patient, but nurse-physician communication. You're, you've become a proponent of that um, nurses need to, to, to use the authority that they have to be able to ensure that patients are getting the care they need. That's right. And, and the reason why I, I, I do that is because poor communication is consistently one of the top three causes of adverse or harmful events for hospitalized patients. And in at least one study that was done in Australia, oh gosh, a couple of decades ago, poor communication was responsible even for patients' death. So, you know, part of the problem is that nurses do not talk in a way that physicians understand. We're trained in different worlds. We're trained in different spheres. You know, nurses are at the bedside 24-7, and it's their responsibility to raise the alarm. When something is happening, it's their responsibility to say to the physician, come, please, come. Something is going on here. I need you here to help with whatever is the problem, right? But unfortunately, nurses are not good at doing that. They often use a very indirect kind of communication. It's actually got a name. It's called hint and hope. Hint and hope. (laughs) Hint and hope, yeah. They hint at what they would like, and they hope they get it. Now, you can imagine a physician when gets that kind of a communication from a nurse of hinting and hoping. They're confused by such indirect communication, and they will offer ignore the request. So, you know, the, the, this is part of the problem. I think it, it's on nurses to, to, we have to find a way to hook our physician colleagues to say words in a way that the physician will understand. Give them the facts, ma'am, just the facts, like from that old, um, was it Perry Mason or one of those yeah. old detective series, right? You know, just the facts, ma'am. Nurses, we're not trained to give just the facts. Yeah. We're trained to go all over. We want to talk about psychosocial influences. We want to talk about cultural influences, family and friends. That's all important. I'm not saying it's not, but that's not what a doctor needs in the moment. And uh, I was the editor-in-chief of the American Journal of Nursing from... 1999 to 2009 and we published two or three studies of physician abusive behavior and one in particular uh, by a physician um i think his name was alan rosenstein if i'm remembering correctly and 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 one of the things that struck me is that in his qualitative study of nurses who experienced physician abuse, the conclusion by by many of the nurses who had experienced this was, well, I'm just not going to talk to or contact that physician again. And when you think about that and think about how a patient may be showing some signs of deterioration, and if you're reluctant to call that physician in the middle of the night, that patient could, do, as we say, go down the tubes and have major complications and even die, as you mentioned. So it's, I, I think um, sometimes even nurses underestimate how important it is to make sure, and physicians, to have really good communication. Um, so, so you've been thinking about, so what can patients do when you're a patient Patient, what can you do to make sure that you are being heard, that your concerns, your questions are being addressed, and 
and feel feel as you said the agency that you have the right and the wherewithal to say I need more information or what have you. Talk to us yeah. about your thoughts, your recommendations. Yeah, so you know, there are, actually there are several things that patients can do um, to ensure that their concerns and questions are being addressed. You know, like it's totally fine, and in some places, patients are even encouraged to say things like, "I don't understand what you're saying," or "I have a question about my care," or even something like, "Can you please repeat that information in another way using other words?" Patients do not talk in medical jargon, nor do they understand it, but many times they're afraid to speak up and say so. Upon discharge or leaving the ER, patients receive written instructions, but they may feel rushed and not take the time to read those discharge instructions. You know what it's like, Diana. Yes. You're in the emergency room and you get discharge instructions and the nurse or somebody else is standing there with the paper and a pen in hand and say, here, sign this and you yeah. can go. Yeah. Right? So patients feel rushed. But maybe what they should do is they should tell whoever handed them the instructions, I will need a few minutes to read through everything you just gave me. Please come back in five minutes. And at that time, I may have more questions before I am ready to leave. Hmm. Patients could ask to have a long list of discharge instructions summarized, saying, what are the main points here? Patients could ask the clinician who gave them the instructions to circle or underline the most important points on the instructions. Mm. Ideally then, the clinician and patient would have a conversation about those points and whether the patient agrees with the emphasis that the clinician has placed. And this takes into account then the patient's values and the patient's perspectives, which are often unknown. Finally, patients can and should say, I'm going to repeat everything back to you. Can you let me know then if I got it all right? Mm. Mm. And and um, how open do you think the clinicians will be to patients demonstrating this agency? Yeah, probably not very open initially. <laughs> I can imagine um, some of them some of them might be, but it's not it's it's not the usual. And I think when it's time to turn the page, Diana, it is definitely time to turn the page. Uh, diagnostic errors are not decreasing. Um, poor communication and its uh, uh, side effects are not going away. It's time to include, I think, the patient in some of these discussions and have the patient become more assertive and more in control of their own destiny, as it were. Mm. You know, I I um, I had a concern with uh, um, a healthcare provider last year, and when I saw the clinician on a visit, said, "I need to have a conversation with you." And I reiterated what what had happened on a phone call and uh, with somebody else in, in the office and uh, why I was dissatisfied and how important it was for me to be able to have a good relationship with my health care providers and that trust was very important and two-way trust. And I have to say, so the I, that, that the clinician felt that she could trust me and I felt that I could trust the clinician. And I have to say that I feel that it did improve uh, the clinician's willingness to, to trust that what I'm saying to him or her is the truth. It is what I need. It is what I'm concerned about. 
Um, and I think it's worth people having those conversations, particularly with clinicians that they see multiple times. Um, you know, whether it's your primary care provider, nurse practitioner, PA, physician, or it's, let's say, you go to somebody for diabetes care and it's a consistent provider. So, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I, I just, wanted, just, just, just don't want to say one thing related to that. You know, Diana, it's easier to establish those kind of that kind of trust when you have a pre-existing relationship with mm. the provider. Yeah. But, you know, in the ER, the physician doesn't know you. You don't know yeah. the physician. And it, it takes more effort yeah. to build that trust. Um, and to get at that relationship, but it is possible. Yeah. So that's something else that we're thinking about doing is how can we um, manipulate the environment in a way to promote trust. So one thing is, you know, when you go into a cubicle in the ER, having the provider sit down at eye level with the patient rather than standing over the stretcher, you know, leaning on the side rails. So that eye level, that meeting of somebody's eyes um, is one thing that can really help bringing that stool uh, close to the stretcher so that the, the uh, physician can reach out and touch the patient. That's something else that is very positive. So there are things that uh, they're, they're coming into uh, studying, and I think these kinds of things will all help build that trust and start to build at least uh, uh, some kind of a relationship uh, in the ER setting. Dr. Melissa Manoilovich is a researcher and professor of nursing at the University of Michigan and a senior fellow at the Center for Health Policy and Media Engagement at the George Washington University School of Nursing Center. Uh, Center, Yes, yeah, I already said the Center for Health Policy and Media Engagement. Uh, Melissa, thank you so much. Your work is really important. And uh, you, you got to come back on again and tell me when we've got some progress being made here. Oh, that would be wonderful. I, I look forward to that day, Diana. It's a deal. Happy New Year to you, Melissa. Thank you so much. Happy New Year to you, too. Bye-bye. Bye. She's doing really important work. And, uh, yeah, I hope that uh, clinicians are starting to pay attention to some of these nuances. Well, um, you've been listening to Health Center and the Catskills. Uh, I'm Diana Mason, the host of this program. You can hear these segments of on Health Center from Health Center and the Catskills by going to healthmediapolicy.com. That's healthmediapolicy.com.